The latest Omicron variant, BA5, is the dominant COVID strain in the U.S. right now. As much of the country went maskless this summer, the highly transmissible variant has caused another COVID surge. California has been experiencing one of the biggest spikes. In July, cases in Los Angeles went up by 50 percent, while daily COVID deaths doubled. New York City has also seen a rise in hospitalizations and ICU patients. As cities and states cope with COVID-19, the Biden administration is also responding to the monkeypox outbreak, which is now a global health emergency, according to the WHO. We'll get into that later in the show. After the break, we start with an update on BA5 and what you should know about this latest COVID variant. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to have your questions answered on future shows. Download the 1A Fox Pop app and leave us a message. We're discussing the latest on BA5. That's the current dominant COVID variant. Joining us now is Dr. Abra Kron, an infectious disease physician at Stanford University. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So, Dr. Kron, you were on our show back in April when the subvariant BA2 was the dominant strain of all COVID cases. Now we're dealing with a much more transmissible variant. How do the number of cases you're seeing now compare to the caseload four months ago? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the caseload now uh, has increased again and, and kind of leveled off at 120 to 130,000 around the country. Um, for us, you know, in the hospital at least, uh, while there is a trickle of cases, I would say it's not a huge surge the way that it has been um, earlier on in January. Although, again, that differs by the city that you're in, by the hospital that you're in. And uh, just because that's not the case at this moment where I'm working doesn't mean that it won't be at some point soon. Um, what I will say is that, as you mentioned, because this variant is so transmissible, has been able to uh, reinfect people who had prior infections, um, and because we have no mitigation measures really in place anywhere, um, you know, really no big upgrades to ventilation or air filtration, no big upgrades or, or any sort of policy measures for um, using high filtration masks indoors. And then also our testing infrastructure is very different now, whereby a lot of people are doing at-home tests or if they're testing at all. Um, it's been a little bit tougher. It, it, I don't want to say this snuck up on us because many many health experts have been warning that you know we're in an ongoing wave that's sort of not getting better and could be getting worse. Um, but the sort of strategy, I suppose you can say, uh, from the federal government side has been a little bit different. It has not focused on bringing cases down so much as trying to reduce the, the death rate. Um, and so that's kind of where we're at now, where you know, we're still seeing a trickle of uh, some places we're seeing big increases in uh, hospitalizations, um, big increases in ICU compared to just, you know, weeks to months ago. Um, deaths are still relatively lower than they have been in earlier parts. But, you know, low is a relative term. And when we're having, you know, several hundred uh, deaths per day, a few thousand per week, that's a lot. Mm. But perhaps our perspective on this uh, has, has sort of shifted over time. Should it have shifted? When I hear you say I- the federal government isn't isn't really trying to mitigate spread so much as the number of deaths. And I should mention, you've pushed to keep protocols like mask mandates and accessible testing in in place to prevent more surges in variants. So what do you think about this approach? Well, I think the reality is that, you know, a few thousand deaths a day from this is unacceptable. Uh, It's, it's, you know, we we know every day there's people who are immunocompromised, people who have high risk, um, family members who are near them. And I, I know that for a lot of people, a lot of patients, 
Um, and those especially who have to use certain areas of, you know, like public transit, um, have to go to crowded settings um, to get to work, to get to get groceries, uh, to do other sort of necessary tasks. Uh, a lot of people feel like they're just on their own, where they have to upgrade their masks as, as much as possible. But uh, we know people are getting infected uh, despite wearing high filtration masks if they're in a big crowded area um, where they have to be there for long periods of time. So I think any mitigation measure uh, is going to work better when many people are doing it as opposed to just a few. Um, and what this is, is essentially it's putting the burden back on people that that really still are trying to avoid infection or avoid reinfection um, because they have a, everyone has different circumstances and the risk of having some really bad outcome happen uh, is very different amongst different family families, different communities. So I don't think that the, the strategy is working right now to say that you know we have clinical tools so that if and when you get really when you get sick, um, the chance that you die is much, much lower than before. I think people deserve to live in a country where we utilize our public health infrastructure. We utilize the scientific knowledge that we have to reduce spread so that people don't have to keep getting infected, missing work, getting long COVID, uh, or potentially having some family members, uh, you know, even die of this. Well, COVID hospitalization rate rose 70% in New York City between June and July. What does that tell you about the severity of the BA5 variant, its ability to cause severe disease? Well, it says a few things. I mean, we have to remember we're also in the background of a very low booster rate in this country, right? A lot of people got their primary first and second doses, did not get boosted thereafter. Um, and we know there, you know, even if you've gotten boosted, uh, some people have required additional boosters until we get upgraded vaccines, um, updated vaccines later this year. And what that tells me is when you have something like COVID, which is so transmissible, when you have a lot of people infected, even if a small percentage of those uh, people end up in the hospital, that's still a very, very large number. And we've tried to make this point over and over again. And you know what gets tricky with COVID is that there's two factors that you think about. One is virulence. So how severe is a virus? How severe of illness does it cause on an individual level? And then how transmissible is it? And COVID is somewhere now where a lot of people have been infected and reinfected and they think that the virulence is not a big deal, that they got sick, but they got better. So people aren't as worried about it. Um, but the transmissibility is such that so many people get infected that on a population level, you see big problems. You see high hospitalizations, you see deaths um, occurring even now. So that that's the sort of trickiest part. Now, if if people that were younger were getting much, much sicker, I think that that would change people's perceptions of this. Um, but that's, you know, of course, that's not the case right now. The Biden administration announced they'll start offering second booster shots to all adults in September. Right now, second shots are only available for people 50 and older and those who are immunocompromised. But President Biden, who's fully vaccinated and double boosted, is still tested positive for COVID-19 twice. So what's the purpose of that second booster shot? Well, you know, the, the purpose is that over time, as your, um, your sort of antibody response wanes, uh, your neutralizing antibodies that you gain from getting vaccinated and getting boosted, um, the administration's essentially saying, okay, if we get more boosters in, um, then we can sort of thwart off whatever may be coming later this year. As people head indoors more, we've seen bigger surges in the winters um, in some parts of the country. And we know that time, more time has passed since people have gotten their first booster. So I think that's what they have in mind. Now, with that being said, um, you know, some of the companies, uh, vaccine companies have updated vaccines coming out, bivalent vaccines, which are based on older strain of COVID plus an Omicron variant. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of clinical testing, real world uh, data that still has to come out on the efficacy of these. Um, and remember, this is still based on an earlier strain of Omicron, not PA5. So it remains to be seen. I'm, I'm hoping that these are still quite effective uh, relative to not getting the booster. Um, but, you know, this is the tough part. We're continuously playing catch up on variants. Um, why don't we address this from the source? The source is that, you know, the way that this spreads is the same. It spreads through aerosols that linger in the air um, and concentrate close to people that are infected. We, if we can get better ways to reduce um, that until we get better updated vaccines, then we could thwart off a lot of infections. We can thwart off hospitalizations and deaths. I don't think that there's political will to do it. I think people are fatigued. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, monkeypox is on the minds of a lot of public health officials. We're trying to make sure that doesn't gain a bigger stronghold here. So I, I think our public health infrastructure capacity has just totally been tested, pushed to the limits. I'm not sure what else they're going to be doing. One of the newer treatments for COVID-19 is the antiviral pill Paxlovid. How effective is that treatment and what concerns are there around rebounding after having the treatment? Yeah, no, I'm really glad that you brought this up. So we know that Paxlovid, uh, you know, clinical data shows that Paxlovid does a very good job of preventing you from getting much more sick if you have an infection. That we know. What is unclear right now is that what is the true incidence uh, of Paxlovid rebound, whereby someone finishes uh, their initial course, they seemingly get better, and then there is an increase in virus again. Um, could it be that people who are older have more weakened immune systems, have a higher incidence of this? That's probably likely in my mind. Um, and so we're seeing this with President Biden happen now, and so he's getting his second course. Um, but you know, we need to understand this better. That's infectious disease physician Dr. Abra Kron talking about BA5 and the latest COVID surge. Dr. Kron, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much. Up next, we answer your questions about monkeypox and the similarities between the public health response to the COVID pandemic and this latest viral outbreak. We'll be back with more in a moment. Let's get back to the conversation. We have an outbreak that has spread around the world rapidly through new modes of transmission about which we understand too little and which meets the criteria in the international health regulations. For all of these reasons, I have decided that the global monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. That was the head of the World Health Organization announcing the agency is deploying its highest level warning for a new global outbreak, monkeypox. The CDC has identified more than 5,000 known cases of monkeypox in the U.S., the highest number of cases globally. Public health experts are criticizing America's slow response to the spread. The first U.S. case was identified in May, and the caseload is now outpacing the rollout of vaccines. To give us the latest on the public health response to monkeypox is Dan Diamond. He's a health policy reporter at The Washington Post. Dan, it's always great to have you. Jen, thank you for having me back. And also with us is Dr. Celine Gounder. She's a senior fellow and editor-at-large for public health for Kaiser Health News at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Dr. Gounder, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's just start with the basics. Dr. Gounder, how does the monkeypox virus operate? So monkeypox is a virus. It's a distant uh, cousin of smallpox. It is not nearly as deadly as smallpox. But it can cause extremely painful lesions. Uh, currently, the virus is spreading most actively among 
uh, gay and bisexual men as well as trans women. Many of these lesions are in sensitive parts of the body, such as inside the mouth, the genitalia, and the anus, and those can be extremely painful. Uh, monkeypox can also be deadly in certain populations, in particular pregnant women, newborns, very uh, young kids, as well as the immunocompromised. Outside of the lesions, what other symptoms are associated with the virus? So people often experience fevers. The fevers may start before or after the skin lesions. Swollen lymph nodes, uh, so for example, in the neck, the armpit, and the groin are also uh, typical of this. But I think by far the symptom that people are complaining about the most is extreme pain with these lesions to the point where some people need to be hospitalized just for pain control with IV pain medications. And how long does the virus incubate before symptoms appear? Uh, on average, uh, just under two weeks, uh, but it can take up to three weeks for the virus to incubate. And then once somebody has the lesions, it can take between two and four weeks for them to recover, which does complicate things like isolation. If somebody's trying to isolate themselves so as to prevent spread to others, two to four weeks is a really long time for somebody to be away from work or away from school. And unfortunately, we don't have safety nets to help those people. Are some people asymptomatic carriers of the virus, Dr. Gallander? This is a very important question, and we don't have a good answer to that. We also don't have a good answer as to whether uh, other bodily fluids, uh, for example, semen or urine or feces or blood can transmit to other people. There's a lot that we're still trying to figure out and as quickly as we can. Now, this disease already existed in and infected people in West and Central Africa. What's different about the way it spread in other countries compared to the U.S., Dr. Gounder? So originally, we saw this largely in children, um, children who might have come into contact with wild animals. Uh, monkeypox is called monkeypox, but rodents are probably the primary host. And then you might have had um, a little bit of household transmission, but these things kind of petered out. They didn't continue spreading. And then sometime around... 2017, we started to see a big increase in cases in Nigeria among men between their 20s and 40s. And what we're realizing now in retrospect is likely this was spillover of the virus into gay communities. Uh, in Nigeria, gay sex is illegal. And so you can imagine if you have lesions that you suspect might be related to uh, your sexual activities, you may not go see a doctor for care because you're afraid of um, criminal action being taken against you. Dan, what steps has the Biden administration taken so far to control the outbreak? One argument, Jen, would be that the Biden administration hasn't done enough, though I think things have picked up in recent weeks. The move that has gotten a lot of attention, the Biden administration has ordered uh, and, and acquired more than a million doses of what's called Genios. It is the only vaccine that is approved by the federal, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, FDA to inoculate against monkeypox. There also are hundreds of millions or more than 100 million doses of an older vaccine, ACAM 2000, in the federal stockpile that could be used, though that vaccine is approved for smallpox. So we do have that on hand as well. The Biden administration has made testing more available in recent weeks. At the beginning of the outbreak, it was far more limited, which made it harder to pick up cases. The Biden administration has also tried to ease access to a treatment called T-pox, though I will say I'm still hearing from physicians and patients who are running into bureaucracy and paperwork around prescribing that drug. 
We got this question from Michael and Fred who asked, can you contract monkeypox from toilet seats or gym equipment? Dr. Gounder? I think that's highly unlikely. Um, we have seen uh, MRSA, MR, uh, which is a staff that's resistant to certain antibiotics, be transmitted in gyms, uh, on wrestling teams, for example. But we really haven't seen evidence that this can happen with monkeypox, at least so far. I think just in general, um, there's a reason they have those wipes for you at the gym, which is to wipe down your equipment before and after use. And, and if you do that, I think you, you really can have peace of mind about this. Let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's a question we got from Jackson in North Carolina. As a LGBT person, how do you think the monkeypox outbreak is similar to the AIDS epidemic and the way it's being treated in the men having sex with men community? Um, especially around New York, and how might that be used against the men who have sex with men community in the future? Uh, Dr. Gounder, first remind us, what was the U.S. public health response to the 1980s AIDS epidemic? It was one of fear of stigmatization. You had President Reagan at the time who wouldn't even talk about it. It was made fun of in presidential press briefings, um, you know, this was a very stigmatizing situation, and there is good reason for people to be afraid of the same. Uh, I certainly could understand a patient of mine not wanting to disclose their diagnosis to an employer, for example. Um, so unfortunately, some of that has not changed. I, I think one critical difference between HIV and monkeypox, at least from a medical perspective, HIV is not curable. And so it's a lifelong infection. Monkeypox is an acute infection. You do recover. You will get to the point where you're no longer infectious. And that does have very important implications for how it's spread. With HIV, you could be monogamous with a single partner and then change partners over time, but have only one partner at any one time. With monkeypox, you really need to have multiple partners around the same time to see spread. Dan, what have you observed in, in, around the messaging, the, the public health messaging around the monkeypox outbreak and how perhaps it mirrors some of what we saw in the AIDS response? Jen, my colleague at The Post, uh, Fennin Nirapal, had a great story recently on how monkeypox has has tried to navigate, uh, public health experts have tried to navigate both the need to warn but the need not to stigmatize the gay community, and also all the cracks in the U.S. health system, even in the gay community, where well-off gay men might be able to get quick access to treatment, might be able to snap up the vaccine appointments, and then the uninsured uh, gay men, or, or men who are more on the margins, unable to get access to care. And I think that is a way that we are seeing a replay of what's happened with earlier diseases, certainly HIV, AIDS, and others more recently, too. Dr. Gounder, we're over two years into the COVID pandemic. Uh, we're now looking at the monkeypox outbreak. And I just wonder, from, from a public health perspective, how you're reflecting on where we are as a nation and, and our public health systems, our messaging, how we're supporting Americans and moving through these kinds of crises. I think the country has not learned the lessons of covid and it's not public health officials, you know, doctors like me, it's not Dan Diamond at the Washington Post who has not learned these lessons. We know what the problems are, but it requires Congress recognizing this is a priority, allocating funding. It requires uh, local officials doing the same, allocating funding and resources and scaling up staffing in a sustained way, not just 
this boom and bust cycle of public health funding. And it requires just the general public to say, look, public health is a priority and to let their elected officials know. And I just don't see that kind of um, advocacy happening at this time. Here's a voicemail we got from Caleb in Cincinnati. I'm just confused as to why vaccines aren't widely available yet. The vaccine seems to me to be similar to the smallpox vaccine, and there are already two monkeypox vaccines that we have in our national stockpile. So why haven't the vaccines become widely available, you know, like we rolled out with COVID? Seems like monkeypox vaccines are only available in larger cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and monkeypox is affecting almost all 50 states at this point. Dan, how widely available are these vaccines? The U.S. has a limited supply of Genios. This is, again, the only vaccine approved by the FDA to specifically protect against monkeypox. About 1.1 million doses total. And it's supposed to be given out in a two-shot regimen. So that covers, if you just do the math, about 550,000 people. But the CDC has figured that at least 1.6 million people should be vaccinated. So that would include people who might have been exposed to monkeypox, gay and bisexual men who have had multiple sexual partners, and they're, they're allocating those doses around the country. But if you think about that math, it just doesn't work. 550,000 people uh, totally protected, 1.6 million people in this population. So that has led to significant shortage and places like Philadelphia only having in the thousands of doses for a population that is much larger. As a result, there are cities like Washington, New York City, saying that they'll give out one dose uh, for now, not, not focus on the second dose, just to try and stretch supply as much as possible. As the caller alluded to, there is this second vaccine, ACAM 2000. It's been approved for smallpox, which is a related virus, would offer good protection against monkeypox too, but that vaccine is hard to administer, or at least certainly harder than Genios. It requires a number of quick jabs that can draw blood. I don't know if Dr. Gounder has had to administer it before, but my understanding is you need a bit of extra training. The risk for complications is higher with ACAM 2000. It relies on a weakened live virus that could actually lead to infection if not properly managed. And given all the fears over vaccine hesitancy the past few years, Jen, I, I know health officials who don't want to give out ACAM 2000 if they can help it over worries that it could somehow backfire in the public eye. Washington, D.C. has the most cases of monkeypox per capita in the U.S., and their health department recently changed its vaccine policy to prioritize giving out the first dose to those most at risk of infection. Here's D.C. epidemiologist Dr. Anil Mengla on that strategy. It is possible to restrain and stop monkeypox. Time and the availability of vaccines is of essence. The model we have implemented to control the outbreak in D.C. is to be aggressive in administrating these vaccines in the arms of individuals that are at high risk rather than having these doses stored in a refrigerator. Uh, Monkeypox virus rarely mutates, and the vaccines are 85% effective. These qualities are of advantage in public health, and let's utilize them to our advantage. So as Dr. Manglin noted, monkeypox really mutates. So Dr. Gounder, what does that mean for those who get that first shot but are going to have to put off the second dose to, to try to make the vaccine go farther? Well, based on what we've seen, and there haven't been a ton of studies on this, but um, probably the best was um, a study looking at the effectiveness of monkeypox uh, in non-human primates. 
as well as some lab markers. And this was published in the New England Journal a couple years ago. Based on those studies, your antibody levels are um, quite high even after the, sec the sorry, excuse me, first dose. Uh, it's really to have more durable um, and slightly stronger um, antibody responses that you give the second dose. It is very reasonable to spread out the first and second doses by two to three months. But this is a situation in which it hasn't been assessed formally. Um, the FDA has not approved that formally. And the CDC is not going to override the FDA. But you do have some local jurisdictions like New York and D.C., that are doing something very reasonable in order to get more people vaccinated with at least one dose. Dan, have you heard of any plans to try to ramp up production and distribution of the Genios vaccine? There are plans underway, Jen, to try and find a U.S. manufacturing partner to produce more of these doses. But right now we are relying on the Genios manufacturer, Bavarian Nordic. It's located in Denmark. This reared its head recently. You may have seen the stories about the doses that were stuck over in Denmark waiting for federal inspection for some weeks. And that, that manufacturer is facing heavy demand from around the world. The U.S. is not the only country trying to buy up these doses. So as of right now, we are not expecting any more Genios doses to come until October. That means we're heading into the next three months with the vaccine supply we likely have. Let's go back to our voicemail box. My husband and I are getting our monkeypox vaccines next week. Our question is, are there side effects or reactions that are more or less common that we should expect or look out for? Dr. Gounder, what can you tell him? Yeah, the side effects are pretty typical of, of any vaccination, really. Um, you can get a fever after any vaccination. That's really a sign that your immune system is revving up and uh, responding to the vaccination. Uh, you might have some pain at the injection site. Uh, but beyond that, you know, people have been tolerating the uh, monkeypox Geneos uh, vaccinations quite well. Jose asks, after someone gets monkeypox, are they immune? Dr. Gounder, are they? Yes. Um, and we saw the same thing with smallpox. Uh, an infection with monkeypox or smallpox does confer immunity, whether it's lifelong immunity. Um, that was the teaching with smallpox. Once you had it, you um, wouldn't get it again. But this hasn't been formally studied with monkeypox. And, um, you know, I think you will see studies on that. We also got this tweet from Ileana D.U., who mentions that there have been cases of women and children contracting monkeypox. Dan, is that something you've been tracking? There have been some spillover cases, Jen. There are almost certainly cases that we're not picking up because they're either not being tested uh, for or people are being misdiagnosed. But we do know that at least two children have been confirmed for monkeypox in the U.S., and a pregnant woman that was confirmed as well last week. And Dr. Gounder, what do we know about how those infections are spreading? Well, so this has been um, seen in um, prior outbreaks. We have not seen um, further transmission. So that pregnant woman had a healthy baby. Um, we know, however, that in, uh, for example, the Congo, where uh, there have been a series of pregnant women uh, who had monkeypox studied, um, some of those women miscarried, some of them had stillbirths. Uh, so that is a very high-risk situation for pregnancy. The two kids are, uh, to my knowledge, doing fine uh, and did not transmit onward to others. Now, the Biden administration has not announced a federal public health emergency, but San Francisco and New York have declared them locally. If President Biden does announce a public health emergency, how would that change the public health response to monkeypox, Dr. Gounder? 
Well, it would potentially free up additional funds, um, but those um, sources of funds are pretty tapped out already. Um, and we haven't seen any interest from Congress to replenish um, COVID response funds, public health funds. So that's going to be of limited help. I think where the biggest implications might be are for the FDA in terms of how they authorize tests, in terms of how they authorize the use of, um, say, Janeo's vaccine, perhaps in broader populations, or the use of TPOX, the treatment. Um, so there, there might be some impacts there. We got this tweet from Jamie who says, as a retired public health worker, I was involved in HIV AIDS. We have to have boots on the ground with prevention and treatment messages in the high-risk communities. Dan, you reported on the similarities between the public health response to monkeypox and the early stages of the COVID pandemic. What similarities are you seeing? Yeah, Jen, that was a story I did with my colleagues, Lena Sun and Fenn Nirapal. And I think what we saw, this was this was more than a month ago now, and it's only persisted. The speed of the response at the federal level was lacking. The ability to make testing more rapidly available didn't happen with COVID, didn't happen initially with monkeypox. The concerns that the federal bureaucracy wasn't cutting through red tape enough on these treatments like TPOX. Again, that continues for some patients and physicians. I think it is significantly different. Monkeypox is a known virus. We do have, as they say in the Biden administration, we have the tools to fight it. But the question has been, have we made those tools as accessible as quickly as we can? And just like with COVID, monkeypox spread more rapidly than federal officials were expecting. So now we're playing catch up, just like with COVID in 2020. That's Dan Diamond. He's health policy reporter for The Washington Post. Also with us, Dr. Celine Gounder, a senior fellow and editor-at-large for public health for Kaiser Health News at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Dr. Gounder, Dan, thanks for speaking with us. We also heard from Dr. Abrar Karan, an infectious disease physician at Stanford University. Today's producer was Sophia Alvarez-Boyd. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk more soon. This is 1A.